but any therapist who claims they can fix people, they're lying. Maybe you are good enough. Maybe you don't need validation. Maybe you do not need to prove yourself to anyone. If anyone's struggling today and they believe that the next job, the next car, the next wife is going to solve the problem for them and make them happy, it will not. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Now, I'm here in London this week filming with a whole bunch of incredible guests. Now, Owen has been through a world of troubles in his life growing up in Northern Ireland and having to cope with the troubles that existed there, along with finding out his masculinity was impacted by the fact that he was gay. Now, challenged? I think so. But what he did was remarkable. He's a world-renowned psychologist. He's released three Sunday Times best-selling books. And his new book, which is the one that I think is the most interesting, is about how to be your own therapist. Look, we go through lots of challenges in life. Sometimes we just can't work our way through it. The stories we tell ourselves get us get in the way of us being who we really want to be and achieving what we really want to achieve. We don't always go out and find the outside help. And what Owen does is teaches us how to look within ourselves and how to understand how we can be our own therapist and make a difference to our lives. So let's get stuck in. Cue the music. This one's a good one. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Owen, thank you so much for coming to join us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. You're my first guest in London. I know, first guest in London. <laughs> Early start on the Monday morning. <laughs> and look, for me... Getting on the show was important for a couple of reasons. Number one, I said to Mo Gowdat, who, if I talk to anybody in London, should I talk to? And you were one of two people he said I should talk to. So big shout out to Mo for he's that. He's lovely. He, he's great. I love him. He's a good guy. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's yeah. one of, he's one of uh, we would say he's a salt of the earth type of guy. He is he? actually, yeah, he is. Yeah. When I met him for the first time, actually, it all happened coincidentally. And our conversation, it was an odd thing, actually, our conversation within a minute so I don't know, something quite magical happened, but we really gelled. And um, I think we talked for an hour and a half. And when I was on his pod, I, we had the edit, obviously. But And I can remember thinking I got to the end and it felt like five minutes had gone. Ah, that's, that's the sign of a and good I, episode. And I don't remember what I talked about. I can remember we got to the end and I don't really remember what we talked about. But I remember it was a great episode because I think, yeah, it just flowed naturally. But yeah, he's a shout out for more. <laughs> now, he talks about unstressable. He talks about happiness and understanding, obviously, on the back of his son Ali passing and how yeah. everything changed for him. And I think that, that more and more nowadays, people are starting to think about why happiness is important. But I come from a world where, you know, back in the late 80s, it was it was kind of hustle and grind and yeah. you don't pursue what you love because you've got to go and pursue what you're good at and go and get out there and make it happen type of type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, yet nowadays we see people saying, well, I only want a job if it makes me feel happy inside, mm. you know, if, I, if I'm being fulfilled in an emotional way. Yeah, yeah. You know, I suppose we used to live with the fear when I was young of, the, well, if you don't get paid, you don't pay the bills. And Absolutely. if you don't pay the bills, yeah. you know, 
and and walking away from a job, you'd only ever do that if you had a better job to go to. It's an interesting point. When when I left my permanent job a couple of years ago after the first book came out, I couldn't manage all of the stuff around it. One of the first, I grew up in Belfast, Irish working class family. And when I left my job to start doing the books and talks and everything else, the first thing my dad said to me was, are you sure you're giving up a permanent job? As in the NHS, as a clinical lead, he said, yeah. are you sure you're giving up a solid permanent job that you've done for a long time? Why would you do that? He didn't get it. So I think it's that kind of culture, isn't it? About do the job, earn your money, get on with it, be grateful for having a job. Whereas I think we've moved on from, it's got to be more than that. You've got to find that purpose. I mean, I do believe wholeheartedly. I think a lot of people exist and don't live I really do believe that there's a lot of people who just go through the motions and mm -hmm. are almost on autopilot and I really don't believe we're here to do that I really do believe that I'm not saying that it's magical all the time and that everybody can live their dream and because I think that's that's another conversation but I do think we're not here just to get through and to exist when do we when do we work that out because you know I'm, I'm 53 and I I, I kind of I must have come to that conclusion in my 40s, mm. maybe mid-40s. Yeah. Hold on, we don't have much time on this planet. It's when yeah. time starts to speed up a bit. Before, that doesn't always seem to be the way. So should we be, you know, should young people be pursuing what they love or should they be pursuing mission and a good question. purpose? I think people should do what they love, but realistically, because most people, you know, they did a survey years ago asking young people, what what, are they, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think about 80% wanted to be famous, but couldn't they couldn't really qualify what they wanted to be famous for. Yeah. So this particular study, people just wanted to be known, wanted to be recognized. But you've got to remember most people who want to break it, you know, if they want to break through in music, being a writer, being an actor, a very small percentage, you know, break through and get huge opportunities. It doesn't happen. So I think it's about realistic expectations but that doesn't mean that you don't follow it through because you can learn a lot along the way even in the moments that you feel or things don't work out so I encourage people to do what puts fire in your belly whatever that is don't always expect it to work out the way you want it to because that doesn't mean that it's right and I think mm. that that's what I've learned look I mean my, my opinion's probably a bit biased I spent 10 years working with people who were terminally ill in the first half of my career so when you do that every day for 10 years of your life when you're surrounded by people who are facing death and your conversations and your work with them are very much about life and what what does it mean there you know you, you can't be in that arena for 10 years when you're listening to people's stories about what they would do differently and their meaning on life and, and their take on life suddenly you think okay I'm getting this wrong and I, I was very lucky because I was doing that probably in my mid late 30s mm -hmm. And suddenly I thought, God, you know, I don't think, I don't think I'm focused in the right direction here. Because when you're set with somebody your age, you know, and you're helping them prepare for their death and they've suddenly got this view on life that you haven't, but it's, you somewhere deeper than you, you know that they've got it right because they have a warning. They have a, they have an insight that I haven't got at that moment in time. And when you saw that over and over and over again, and you heard it over and over and over again, I think that it influenced my work. And how I, you know, I kind of think, look, I, all I do is, you know, psychology based, but I also talk about what people taught me, mm -hmm. particularly my work with a Diane, but I also, my own story as well, which was very imperfect and 
full of challenges and difficulties. It was not a straight path as well. So I think when you when you do this type of work, when you're writing books, doing talks, using platforms, I think you have to be brave enough to include everything that's been part of that. You can't really censor it. And okay, well let's let's let's, t- let's break that down then because you've you've had a journey. You know, yeah, you could say that. <laughs> you, have, you have had a journey and, and you know, you broke some stereotypes along the way or you challenged some stereotypes along the way from the environment that you were in. So for the benefit of everyone in Dubai, let's go back to that beginning then, that young boy that you were, okay, that John Travolta fan. When I look back on it, it was almost like a Billy Elliot, you know. The, the yeah. story was a bit that. For me, it was different. I was playing piano. I was quite musical and I grew up in Belfast very working class family. We didn't have any money. Um, it was tough, the troubles, well, you know. The but it's, just explain, give some people some perspective on that because some people won't understand what the troubles means. What troubles means. So the so. troubles was a conflict in Northern Ireland between basically Protestant and Catholic. And it's a division between some people believe that they are British because, you know, the, the Protestant community would believe that they are British because it's under British law. Um, Catholics believe that they're Irish because it's on the island of Ireland. So there's always been this division about people identifying as British or Irish. So I grew up Catholic, so I was on the the Irish side of the divide, but I never really understood it because I thought, well, we're all just living here. We've got a life to go on with, but the conflict with it was pretty awful. You know, and I did a TED talk and it was called Bombs, Bullets, Bullying and a Piano. Mm -hmm. So it probably just gives you a bit of context. So essentially my first 20 years were bombs and bullets really that's that's what it was and it wasn't it was regular I mean this was an everyday thing and there was trauma there was a lot of trauma my mum's brother was killed during the troubles and there was just a lot of awful stuff and you learn to normalize a lot of awful stuff so I was basically growing up in a war zone and there was a lot of fear so I often talk about the best teaching I had in trauma and anxiety was growing up there you know they don't teach you that at university when you're doing your psychology training and you're taught the models and the psychological processing but when you grow up in a world that was trauma driven and anxiety driven that's who you really learn what it's about really so that was kind of the core backdrop but you know i was a kid who was a bit different as i said it was very working class all of the kids were playing football i was playing piano liked musical theater you know, I think there's probably a few clues here about what was coming next. But I, w- I was different. So I got a pretty tough time. There's a lot of bullying about, you know, I wasn't playing football. I was at music school playing piano. My difference was starting to show. And, and that was tricky, really. And plus, you know, add to that as well, Catholic as well. So mm-hmm. for those that don't know much about Catholic as a religion, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of guilt. You know, I, I've, <laughs> I often joke that if it feels good, it must be bad. <laughs> because there's something around Catholicism that's quite, you know, <laughs> you must suffer, you must feel bad and stuff. So there was a whole combination of fear and beginning to then work out that, that I was different and the kind of terror about, oh, I can't, there's no way this can be true. And there was also the fear as well about it being wrong and shameful. So there was a whole mixed bag of fear, anxiety, shame in in my in my backstory. So by the time I left... um I'd normally, you know, you're in the middle of all of this here and you know, you get on with it and you survive. And it was only when I left, come to London, and suddenly you crash land into adulthood. And you've had all of this 20 odd years of experience that, that wasn't normal, whatever normal is, but it definitely wasn't a normal upbringing or experience. And then you suddenly realize, oh God, yeah. God, so there's, sometimes I, I struggle and I, 
I don't, or sometimes I might feel a bit anxious and I don't know why. Or sometimes my view in the world isn't as trusting as I'd like it to be. So it all started to fit together, really. And of course, I mean, you do your own therapy because we have to, as therapists, you know, it's, I talk in the, the, the book about it. It's like doing a jigsaw, really. When you start to map it all together, then you see who you are. So, you know, I guess in a nutshell, look, it was a tough start. It wasn't easy, but actually it was also quite magical at point as well. You know, there were some really kind people around in my life. Amidst all of the awfulness, there was a lot of laughter and fun and in survival, it's incredible what you'll learn. And I guess as well, look, I would not do my job as effectively as I do it today without that story. Mm. So I kind of think actually, even though it was tough, I think it really has helped me do what I do well. It's interesting you say that. I've got two daughters. One of them is here with us, yeah? And I was bullied as a kid at school. But the bullies motivated me in a really big way. They stayed very vivid in my mind. Justin Zimmerman, Paul Fowler, the names are still here, you know, all these years later. They, they, they literally were the inspiration for, for the, my achievements. Then I have kids that go to school and I have two daughters. One starts to get bullied, of which she grabs somebody by the throat and puts them up against the wall and says, try doing that again. And so, okay, she's got it sorted. Yeah. And the other one's getting bullied and impacted quite dramatically. Yeah. And there's part of me that's saying, get her out of the school. Yeah. The other part of me is saying, this is character building. Mm. This will be important for her story in the future. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, just like you mentioned. So for me, it's like, oh, you know, because it was important for my story. So it's like, oh, you know, I want to protect her, yeah, yeah. but actually I want to expose her because, I, you know, I know 10 or 15 years down the road, she's going to say, I'll show you to those yeah, people that have yeah, impacted yeah. it. Do you know what one of the most incredible things for me has been over the years? When I was younger, probably even in my 20s, I used to see my past as a bad thing and I would used to talk about it in the negative. It was a really tough upbringing. There were bad experiences. I used to use that language all of the time. And actually, the older I've got is I realised that what I, I personalised it a lot. Now, that's going to sound like the oldest thing in the world. But often we do that when difficult things happen in our lives, we personalise it. And of course, to a degree, that's true because it is personal. It's happening to you. But actually, it doesn't mean that it was your fault. Mm -hmm. And I think that differentiation between, yeah, it was personal because it happened to me, but actually none of it was my fault. And so, you know, when I was getting a tough time, with the kids for being different, that was never really personal. I think that was more about living in a culture where difference wasn't tolerated. Mm -hmm. So that's not personal. A lot of people who were in my position or displayed any difference were in a similar position. Growing up in the, the troubles and all the violence, that wasn't personal. I was in the thick of it and it was difficult, but actually so were hundreds of thousands of other people. And the moment I was able to step out of that and think, actually, none of this was about me. These were things that happened to me. There were experiences I had um, that that changed everything for me, actually, mm -hmm. when I started to to see it in that light and and then begin to think about, you know, this has made me a pretty resilient, strong personality. I've I've dealt with a lot of stuff in my life and I can manage and I think I, I think I can rather than be become the victim or rather than see it as a disempowerment, I think I can use this very well as part of my story. And, and like, ironically, you know, I do what I do today and I think, 
you know, that's, it's no coincidence really that I, I made the decision that my story wasn't going to disempower me. It was actually going to, it was going to power my life and it was going to move me forward. Did, did, there's also the difference between being Catholic and being deeply religious. Oh yeah. You know, we can be Catholics and Protestants all day long, can't we? But when you're deeply religious, then the impact of a deeply religious family is is somewhat different on you. So what was your family? They were deeply, I mean, they were deeply religious. They were. And, oh yeah, I mean, to give you context, so my my mum particularly, she's not, a, my mum died quite young, but when we, when we were young, my mum would have, <laughs> I can remember my bedroom, even now I'm visualising it, so there was a, a crucifix behind the bed. Yeah. There was a statue to the right and there was a, a Virgin Mary, a luminous statue that the eyes would light up at nighttime. So when you'd go to bed, <laughs> I'd have all of that. Really? I'd, honestly, the uh, the eyes would be staring down in the bed. So no matter where I turned, there was like, you were surrounded. <laughs> there was no there was no getting out. And I mean, and I don't want to mock religions because spirituality and faith and stuff can be really important for some yeah, people. Yeah. But, but ours was quite extreme in some ways. And, you know, I can remember my mum would sometimes, there would be like holy water in the house and, you know, we would be sprinkled sometimes going out the door for safety and then sometimes you'd be even forced to drink it you know if you had an exam or something this water had been there for like 10 years it was probably poisonous or toxin <laughs> <laughs> full of toxins but you were forced to drink it because if you drank it it would be good luck and you know good things would happen to you so it was all very much you know you would go to mass you would be you know you do you'd be a good yeah. i mean i looked i spent three years in a monastery so when i was 19 I was in a monastery for three years, training to be a priest. So it probably gives you some idea of the the depth of spirituality. It was a really important part of my life. And, and I did that. And I never regret doing that because it was an incredible three years of my life. Met, you know, great people. Worked on projects I never dreamed I would do. Working with people who were drug addicts, homeless projects, younger people. You know, it was a really incredible life experience. But then I would come home to a monastery and, you know lived in a huge, you know, it's a church and a beautiful big monastic building and lived that lifestyle for three years. Actually loved the work and loved the experience, but realised that longer term, okay, well, I can't, I can't be celibate and live this life. There were, there were other things I had to explore. But interestingly, that led me to thinking, okay, what is it, what do I want to do with my life? So that kind of led me sort of down the you know, I can't go, I want to work with people who are suffering. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. So that led to the palliative care work. And then when I was in that arena, I thought, I love this work, but I don't know enough about the human mind because most of the suffering I would see there would be psychological. The physical stuff we could deal with because you had medication, but the psychological stuff I didn't feel equipped to deal with. It. So I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go off and do a master's in psychotherapy. And at the time I got such, I was working in the NHS at the time. And there was opportunities to go off and do a master's and they pushed back and they said, you can't do it, it's not appropriate. And I said, why is it not appropriate? And they said, it's not medical enough. You work in palliative care, that's not medical enough. And I said, but most of what we see is psychological pain, so why wouldn't I do it? Anyway, the head of education at the time in the trust said to me, um, they've turned it down, it's been refused, but I'm going to suggest that you appeal it because I think you've got a strong argument. So I did appeal it, got all the research I could find on why I should do it. And they then let me do it. And that then took my career off in a different direction. So I guess it's been really weird for me that no experience has been wrong. Every single experience has led to a different step along the way. I mean, look, 
go and live in a monastery for three years. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 that would have been an experience on its own. Coming away from there. Look, working in palliative care, I had a friend of mine that used to work with people that um uh muscular dystrophy. Yeah. And he used to work and specialize in dealing with patients that had that problem. And he and he had to leave because it became too depressing. Mm. He said watching people's lives like literally fall apart. Mm. So whether he did four or five years, I can't remember exactly. What, when you were dealing with people in palliative care, of course you have some some interesting stories, some people that have mm. got, I'm sure, regrets and mm. stuff like that that they they want to talk about, things they've missed out on in life. But did it did it did it make you de- down? Did it make you depressed or did it make you feel low? Do you know, it didn't. It's, it's, it's a really good question, actually. And it, it probably sounds odd that I'm saying, actually, no, it didn't. Don't get, don't get me wrong. There were moments when, you know, you would be dealing with someone young, leaving kids behind. And of course, it was tragic and it was terribly sad and terribly upsetting. But the, the work was never, the work's never about, you're not working with people to prepare them for dying. You're working with them to help them live whilst they're dying. So the energy in the, the work's always about focus on living whilst dying. So believe it or not, it's, it's, it's quite upbeat and quite hopeful. A lot of the times you're, you're, you are working with people and you're helping them get the best of their time, whatever that means. And I guess really because most of the time you've got a very different perspective in your head. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, I, I, can, I can remember going to work some days and, you know, I'd be maybe thinking about, oh, I've got to get my car insurance done or got to get a different mortgage or, you know, got to bring the dog to the vet. You know, all the life stuff, oh, I need to change that bank account. And I'd go into work and I'd come out and what was a problem for me would always go into insignificance. Doesn't mean that it wasn't a real problem, but suddenly there was no better lesson in perspective. So I guess the whole time in terms of keeping you steady, I guess the payback is that you get a, you know, you get a real perspective shift that keeps you very level whilst you're doing the work. Okay, this is really fascinating to me. So I, I believe, if we take simple examples, uh, uh, obesity, mm. okay, is a psychological problem, okay? I believe that um, people with financial problems, it's all psychological. And depression, okay? I don't believe in depression, medication for depression. Now, a lot of people will say with depression as an example, if you go and work out every day, that will, be, that will do a lot to help you with your depression. And I don't disagree with that at all. But, I suffered with depression and was suicidal 10 years ago. Every week, I go and visit 12 kids from Bangladesh that are in Dubai. I have lunch or dinner with them every week. They've been through unimaginable horrors on their journey. And they're in Dubai. And I go there. And after an hour and a half, two hours with them, it's like I've got this injection in my arm of whatever goodness there is in the world that goes in there and it Make I'm on fire, yeah, yeah, yeah. because I no longer have problems. I yeah. think like you yeah. mentioned, yeah? yeah. Now that's all psychological. All of that is just understanding the situation, <clears throat> and, and whether it's diet or whether it's money or whether it's depression, whatever it is, it's all the stories that we tell ourselves. That's Absolutely. that's all that it is. Or even being able to, I think sometimes it's about being able to step outside of your own suffering. You know, step the, outside, of, yeah. but, but stepping outside of your own suffering consciously. Absolutely, there's a concept called the wounded healer. You know, and I often talk about that. You know, I I never ever step into these arenas pretending that I'm perfect or I'm a guru or I have all the answers. I step in as a human being, 
who understands human suffering. And I think sometimes uh, we often think, oh, I can't do that. I'm not perfect enough or I'm not together enough. There, that never comes. None of us get to a point where we're ever totally together. It doesn't happen. We get periods where we level out, but then new stuff comes along and we're challenged again. So we're never together, but, you know, because we're learning the whole time. And I think to go back to your point, and thank you for being honest about that, it's an incredibly brave thing to talk about you know, your own, your own struggle. I, I personally don't believe in diagnostic labels, you know, to, to your point. I think occasionally a diagnosis can be important because for some people, and this is kind of my experience over the years, for some people medication, we know from the research that about 30% of people may need medication as an intervention, depending on the complexity and depending on what's going on. For me, there's no right or wrong about that. I don't always feel it's a be all and end all, but equally over the years, what I have seen is that if I'm trying to treat somebody and they can't process and they're so kind of almost kind of paralyzed by, by their emotional state, occasionally sometimes medication can be helpful to get them to that point actually where they are able to process, where they can't find enough motivation to get out of bed and do stuff. So it's always a gray area and context always has to be considered. But I believe that most human beings, regardless of who they are, will have moments of ups and downs. So I think, you know, rather than talk about depression, I just talk about fluctuations in mood, which are part of the human condition. Rather than talking about anxiety disorders, I talk about the fact that sometimes we're anxious because when we start calling people disordered, we are not, you know, to be anxious is not a disorder. We talk about personality disorders. Most people who are diagnosed with personality disorders have just had really difficult stories where they've had to learn to survive in different ways. So I think, why would we call people disordered when actually they're human beings who have just been through a very, very tough time? So for me, what I try to do is I'm, I'm aware of why a psychiatrist may attach a diagnosis on occasion, and I get it. However, I think most of the time we need to get better at depathologizing people and working with the premise that to be human is to struggle. And that means some of the time you're going to fluctuate. And things may not be great. That doesn't mean that there is anything wrong. It just means that it could be, like, for example, if we think about emotional states, we all want to feel happy, successful, in love. We can attach to those emotional states like they're a good thing. The other emotions come up, fear, sadness, loneliness, isolation. We see them as bad, so we put a lot of time and energy into pushing them down or trying to get rid of them. But those emotional states are trying to communicate something. And they're always about trying to communicate, getting you back to points of balance or getting you back to a point of equilibrium or take you in a different direction. But if we ignore them and we get rid of them, then we lose so much. So when I'm working with people, I'm always thinking about all of the emotional states are valid. There's no good, there's no bad, there's no right, there's no wrong. But if you can be curious about what's going on and you can stay open to the fact that it's guiding you and leading you along, then there's real power within that, like proper power within that you know and stories like yours have gone through an episode of depression I can only imagine that there there were I, I can imagine at the time it's incredibly difficult but also huge learnings and teachings during that period about life and reevaluating, getting back to a point of balance again so I think we can use all of it rather than rather than see it as a negative or a bad we can see it as okay here's an opportunity to learn here's an opportunity to grow and, and that, that's the truth of the matter. I mean, I, I people come into my room sometimes in absolute desperation. 
and they believe, okay, it's hopeless. I don't see any point. And the only contract I ever make with a client, I don't do complicated contracts. My only contract is at the beginning that I hold on to hope with the belief that they can improve. And they may not believe it, you know, the first week, first two weeks, first three weeks, they may not believe it. But the contract is, I believe there's a way forward and I'm hopeful. So the contract is that they allow me to hold the hope and then when they're ready, I hand it over bit by bit. And I've never once in my career had anyone reject that contract. Never once. Why would they? It it made me think then. When you think about relationships between two people and you think about different cultures and sometimes they collide and then different values. Is it really that or is it just different stories? It's a good question. Because a lot of the time we see these divorce rates as high as they are, but is it just two people that have different stories that didn't understand each other's story beforehand and they're so fixated on that story that they absolutely they it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant point i mean how to be your own therapist the, the the latest book the first half of that book i really focus on not only telling your story but alert you know m- most people get really down in themselves about their story particularly the, the you know the things that haven't gone well or the the disappointments or the failures but you know your your story is your power because within the story you you learn who you are so i kind of think you know Every aspect of who you are today, who I am today, most of it is linked to our experiences and our, and our story. And if, you're, if you allow yourself to go to the store and be curious about, oh, okay, that's why I am this way today. Oh, okay, this is why I struggle. Oh, this makes sense to me. Then you're way more likely to be compassionate to yourself. I mean, if, you, if, you, if people are thinking, oh, I've got all these issues or I really struggle or I'm not good enough or I'm a failure... When you begin to understand the narrative a bit better and think, actually, you know, none of that's true. It's a false narrative. You've just learned to believe this is a truth. And when you kind of start mapping it all together, then you can think, oh, actually, I get it. You know, th- this but isn't isn't that isn't that the genius in what you do? Because when you think about it, most most people have got a narrative that it, it, it's almost like you can't see yourself, can you? Yeah. So, you know, every, every, you know, if you meet 10 people, nine out of those 10 people or eight out of those 10 people will say, you're like this, you're like that, you behave like this, you think like that, you know, you communicate this way. But you'll be like, that doesn't even describe me. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's somebody else. But other people are saying it. So you can't actually see who you are, positively and negatively. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, the people are obviously far more willing to be critical than they yeah, are to be, yeah, yeah. To be encouraging. Yeah. So you have to be careful with that. But for, 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 for that level of understanding, you know, for somebody to understand themselves well enough, yeah, they have to do some work. You got to do. It. I mean, that that's the, that's the hard part because you you do have to do the work. <laughs> most people want the magic wand solution. You know, they do because, and I think most people, understandably, with with struggle, they will come and say, "I'm having a really tough time because I had a tough upbringing." or because my husband's drinking too much, or because my kids are hassling me, or I don't have enough money, my boss is giving me a tough time. Now, there may be some degree of truth in that. There may be some degree of truth in the fact that, yeah, your your struggle's probably elevated at the moment because of the external variables that are going on in your life. 
But the reality, and this is a tough part for most people, the reality is, but the reason you're really struggling is how you're managing the situation, your perspective, mm-hmm. how you're dealing with the thoughts, how you're managing the emotional states. There's a real reason you're struggling. Now, most people will fight back initially with that and think, because it's easier to come in and say, it's all terrible. Fix me, make it better. But any therapist who claims they can fix people, they're lying. They can't. We, we have the skills, we have the training. We, we get a real sense of what works and what doesn't work. But if I were your therapist and you came to me expecting me to fix you, and I'm sure any of my clients who I work with would testify, I do not believe in fluffy therapy. I just don't. It doesn't help people. I'll be compassionate. I'll be empathic. But I will also be really strong with people and, and get them to take responsibility for their lives because that's where the breakthroughs happen. Now, the person may not like it at the beginning because they're disappointed that they have to dig deep and do the work. But I'm wasting someone's time and money if I kind of let them splurge and talk to me for a year about how terrible it's been and get caught in self-pity or... Self-loathing. It's interesting you say that, you know, because uh, I'm good friends with Marissa Peer and she's exactly of that mindset. Yeah, she's yeah. like, well, what's the point of having a therapist you go and see to see for 12 months, you know, yeah. once a week, once a month for yeah. 12 months and you're still downloading, you know, downloading, you know, the woes, okay, yeah. that exist in your life. And, and she has her RTT approach. Yeah, yeah, which, no, which I'm familiar with the know, work she very does. very fierce on that. She's like, why, why would you do that? Yeah. Why would you, why would you even put yourself through that? And it, t- it takes me back to thinking that, that has the world changed? There's three things. If you and I went into business today, there's three things that we could sell that would make us very, very rich very quickly. Okay. Number one is if we invented a tablet that could help people lose 20 kilos in the next four weeks. Yeah. Okay. So lose weight fast. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We could help people get a million followers in a week. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We'd make money out yeah. of that. Or we could help people get rich quick. Mm. And these three things, if we sell any of those three things and we've got a proven method for doing it, we'll go on and make a fortune. Yeah. Because... That's that's feeding into the way that society behaves now. It's like, I want this instant fix, this yeah. instant yeah. solution to these problems. I want, I want them to go away now. I want to gain from it now. Now, you'll know as well as I do, growing a business, for example, takes many years to get it yeah. to where you want it to be, you know, and you're going to have bumps in the road and you're going to make mistakes along the way. But hopefully with a plan, you can get there. Nothing worth having that traditionally we would say from my generation okay comes fast of course it doesn't it's so with the work that you do with the client how do you then process their their situation and then from processing it come up with a an effective solution so take take, let's take me as an example it's probably easier to do that because the audience will know me so if i came to you with my troubles so i'll do a brief summary and everybody knows so in 2012, I was sacked from a company that I was one of the sh- directors and shareholders in that I'd helped to grow for 16 years. Um, the following day, I got a call from my spinal surgeon saying my operation had failed. Um, I needed to have another operation on my spine. And then the following day, my partner of seven years left me. Wow. So within three days, that happened. I then agreed stupidly to be on gardening leave for a year. Okay, fully paid, which I thought would be a good thing. Yeah. Okay, only found out six weeks later that that was a really bad decision. Yeah. So I went into a really dark place, like really dark place, um, planned my suicide, came back to the UK to say goodbye to my kids and all that kind of stuff. Um, And luckily it didn't happen because somebody stepped in that knew what was going on at either their own experience had led them to that. They stepped in, they took me to the Priory and I stayed in the Priory for a week and they helped me understand that what I was going to do would cause so much harm to my kids that it stopped me from making that decision. 
but allowed me then, I I wasn't healed, but allowed me time then to slowly get better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if I was coming to you as a standard standard client with that type of story, what would be your process? I mean, where where you are now, you know, it's been a long time. And again, thank you. I mean, look, I I don't think people realise there's real bravery and courage in sharing these stories and this level of honesty, because I think... And it's a great example of what we need to be doing more because often people hold all of this stuff back. But what I would say is, look, if you look well, back... Hold on a minute. Let me just put some context here. Uh, what day is it today? Monday. Monday. A week ago, sorry, two weeks ago, a very close friend of mine jumped off the seventh floor. Yeah. He survived. Wow. And I said, to, when, I, when he came out of intensive care, I said to him, why? He said, my heart was empty. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is a person that if you put them in a line of 100 people, he would be number 100 as the last person I would ever expect yeah. to do this. Yeah. So this, this, me being honest, I feel it's a duty because I think there's a lot of people out there that suffer yeah. and don't know how to process absolutely. their suffering. No, absolutely. So, sorry, just to no, no, absolutely. Context. It's a really important point. And I think, look, often, you know, if you, if you look at your story or look at your, your friend's story, <clears throat> the things that happen in life and the things that go wrong all of the time in all of our lives, you know, we have losses, we have rejections, we have heartache, we have things that don't go to plan. I often think that we we rely on life to to kind of make us feel better. We rely on the external validators. If I'm employed, if I'm loved, if I'm accepted, if I fit in, then I'll feel better. Now, of course, the problem is when these things are taken away from us, sometimes unexpectedly, if we've relied on them as a means of identity, then they go, we're left with this kind of hollowness. What, what have I got left now? And I guess really my work is about really bringing people inward more, say actually the external stuff, look, you can be ambitious, you can have drive, you can want better things for your life. But if you can find that internal state of steadiness where actually without that relationship, without that money, without that job, without that fame, and trust me, if I'm with a a Hollywood A-lister and I see many high-profile people, you know, I can meet people who are very, very disconnected, unhappy, sad. They have everything imaginable. But if they're using the external validatory stuff as a means to try and kind of deal with the inner hurts and the inner wounds, it, it's a bottomless pit that doesn't work. So I guess my work is about, okay, how, how can you start to learn to work with this stuff? Not needing the validation, perhaps accepting yourself a bit more, learning to work with life rather than against it. And I can't say how important that is because often we have a belief that life needs to go the way we think it should. I have an idea, I have a plan, I have a desire, I have a want, that's what needs to happen. But life doesn't deliver that way. And I think when I watch people really resist life and fight against it, then they really struggle. And that is a real, it's a really tough thing to do. I'm learning this the older I get, the more I submit, the more I let go. If you look at anxiety as a definition, it's an intolerance of uncertainty. So we have real difficulties as human beings. Say that again. Anxiety is an intolerance of uncertainty. Intolerance of uncertainty. That's profound actually when you think about that because people don't think that. They don't think that way. They think that being anxious and trying to control everything will give them control. But actually, it, 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 you know, it's the opposite, really. Many things in our lives are not within our control. But if we don't tolerate that, then we're going to be unhappy. We are going to struggle. So all of the clues are out there. You know, sometimes we do need to go in, inwards more. Sometimes we do need to become more tolerant of not knowing. 
Sometimes we have to let go more. Sometimes we have to take responsibility and realize that the external stuff is not going to be. I, I promise, like, and I say this wholeheartedly, if anyone's struggling today and they believe that the next job, the next car, the next wife, the next pot of money is going to solve the problem for them and make them happy, it will not. It will maybe give a temporary state of elevation and it might create a temporary state of happiness. But if the internal stuff, you know, and I, by that I mean the voice that's telling you that you're rubbish, that you're not good enough, that you're a failure, that you're less than, unless you're willing to go there and do the work, that will just come up time and time again and it will find an inroad. So it's about being courageous enough to go to that stuff because often it's just old stuff that's been regurgitated. It's old scripts that don't serve you well, but we take it as factual. Mm-hmm. And there's real power when you realize all of these patterns, are ju- they're just, they literally are just patterns, but very often, I mean, if you take my own story, for example, if I were to believe the, the early key messages from my story, which are, you're less than, you're not good enough, you're bad, you're sinful, the world isn't safe, I wouldn't go out the door. Mm. But they were actually quite real patterns. They were, they were you know, they, they, these kind of beliefs were been thrown at me on a regular basis for most of my life. But in my own work, I was able to realize, but actually they're just, they're just, that's not true. These are just old patterns that I inherited and that were given to me and that I experienced, but it doesn't mean that they were true and that I have to identify with them. And I think when you're working with most people and you get them to say, you know something, maybe you are good enough. Maybe you don't need validation. Maybe you do not need to prove yourself to anyone. Maybe it's okay when things don't work out. Maybe this isn't in your control. So when you teach people to get steady with that and to be okay with that, then they find freedom and then I guess really you're not at the ransom of life delivering what you think it should do all the time you got this freedom to think you know if it happens it happens and if it doesn't it doesn't if it works out it works out if it doesn't it doesn't so you get the, I mean the freedom that comes with that is it's priceless really mm. wow so you wrote a book to do yourself out of a job then <laughs> you know someone said that to me on an interview uh, I was doing a radio interview and the host said to me so you've written how to be your own therapist or as I call it how to do yourself out of a job <laughs> and I, I thought yeah it's a really good point actually um, T- tell me about the book tell me tell me why you wrote it and and tell me tell me if I read it from front to back what would I take from it I it's my third book and I decided to do it really off kind of the idea came during lockdown I sort of advised against it. Don't write a book about therapy in the UK. People won't buy it. So that was wrong because it was a Sunday Times bestseller. So I think that's really interesting for me that a book that a few years ago, even I would be told, no, no, do it in America. Don't do it in the UK. So I think I've always kind of broke. I was told not to do a book. My first book was called 10 to Zen. I was told not to do it because I would offend the Buddhist community. I said, come on. I went ahead and did it. So I'm, I'm getting much better at learning yeah, to listen. Let me just interject there because I had another guest. I had Lord Jeffrey Archer on the podcast and he sold 250 million copies of his books. He's one of the most successful authors ever. ever. His first book failed and his wife said, darling, please <laughs> do something else. Yeah. And then the second book, Cain and Abel, sold 50 million copies. Wow. Yeah. And so again, people being talked out of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You do. I, I think you've you, you got to listen to stuff with him. But the motivation behind it was... 
lockdown and stuff, I, you know, I saw a human struggle probably at its worst and I'd seen in a long time. In the UK, they estimate there's about 8 million people waiting for an active intervention for treatment. Now, those figures vary depending on how you, how you look at them. But now? Yeah, currently. Now, pe- people can be taken off a wait list and put on a an electronic program or they're given a, an initial talk or something. That doesn't take them off a wait list. It, it means that they've been given a, an intervention but not a full treatment program. So there are a lot of people out there waiting for treatment. There are a lot of people out there who can't afford private treatment. They just can't. Therapy isn't cheap. So I, I sat back and I thought about it and I thought there are all these people out there who are struggling. I wholeheartedly believe in therapy, always have done. It was incredibly helpful in my own life. And I thought, why why wouldn't I sit down and write? It's not a replacement for therapy. It doesn't promise. It's not a magic wand solution. But in with the understanding that a lot of people can't access what we do, why don't I create something that at least gets people started? So the, the first half of the book really is about what we've talked about earlier, you know, Get to know your story. Tell the story, not the polished version of and not the version that you normally tell to the world, the kind of the raw, you know, warts and all version of your story. But more importantly, work with the story. I kind of teach people how to link their story to where they are today. And and there within kind of use your story to empower you. And then the second half of the book's much more pragmatic. It's about, okay, how can you self-therapy yourself throughout the day? Because I think that's a really important thing. Most people get out of bed crash land into the day, go to bed, don't process or deal with anything and they wake up the next day feeling rubbish because it all just snowballs into one. So I break it down into three sections of the day, ready, steady and reset. Ready is the beginning of the day. You know, steady is, mid, you know, the, the middle of the day when we might derail or we might struggle. And then the reset is what we do at the end of the day. And if we take it from the beginning, really, the getting ready for the day, you know, you'd never get into your car and not do your checks. You know, you you get into your car, you check your mirror, you check the gear stick, you know, you make sure you've got enough fuel, you check your mirrors because you need to do that for, for a safe journey. And I think our psychological states are like that. We sort of need to know where we are. I get up today, you know, I had a really busy weekend. I've had a busy few weeks, but I wake today and I think, okay, I need to do a run today because I knew I had a podcast and I've got other meetings today and I've got clients later. And I thought, okay, I've got to get a run in today. I want to do a bit of meditation before I start the day. need to know what's going on in my mind. I need to know what my emotional state is. So the beginning part of the day is about, okay, how can you get set up for the day? How can you quieten the mind? How can you steady up so that whatever the day brings, you feel ready and able to do it? The steadying bit in the middle is is working on the, the premise that someone will really piss you off, pardon my French, at some point today. If it's not a person, it'll be an event or it'll be a situation, something that will happen that will take you off track. And that can then spiral a whole series of thoughts about why did that happen? This is wrong. This is a disaster. This is a catastrophe. So it's about teaching people the skill of coming back to a point of equilibrium. The latter stage of the day is, you know, a lot of people carry worry, fear, uncertainty to bed. We've got a population of people who are insomniacs because they're just carrying so much content. So I teach people, okay, how can you how, how can you process and deal with the stuff in your day so that you're not carrying all of this stuff into to the next day? And I guess if we take anxiety and worry as one thing, most people at the end of the day can easily, and I do this with all my clients, you know, what are the worries? Most people can instantaneously list about 20, 25 things that they're worrying about. 
So I get them to list a worry and then I'll say, um, how many of these worries are in your control? Or can you actively do something about most people at best say one, two? Okay, why would you carry the other 23, 24 worries? What would it be like? We're not denying that there are, there are situations, but what would it be like to park them? What would it be like to be aware of them, but not to invest that energy and time? Because the evidence will tell us 90% of worries in life don't come to fruition. Mm-hmm. We know that the neuroscientists do the, the research. We know that most worries don't come to anything, but the amount of time we spend worrying and in worry mode is just, it's wasted time and energy. Mm-hmm. So in a nutshell, really, good, good self-therapy is about staying level, staying steady, Managing the mind state's not not buying into the thoughts as facts, but just sometimes old patterns that play out. Mm-hmm. Integrating all of the emotional states, not as good or bad, right or wrong, but as one state, being curious, open, aware, so that they can all teach you. And then the biggest thing really is about taking responsibility for your behaviours, because you will know the behaviours in your life that work well for you. Mm-hmm. You will equally know the behaviours that get in the way of your life. Similar for me. So it's about looking at those behaviours and think, okay, what are the behaviours that serve me well? What are the behaviours that don't? And what am I doing about that? Not what, what's, what's, not what's my therapist doing about it or what's my partner doing about it or what's the world doing about it? What am I doing about changing the behaviours that don't serve me well? But isn't that, isn't that where, the, where the true challenge lies? in be able to not, not, not necessarily identify it. Cause I think that if yeah. we're all really brutally honest yeah. and look in the mirror, we yeah. can, we can be honest about what, what our bad behaviors are. Now, whether that be, I don't know, smoking or social media consumption, <clears> whatever <throat> it may be, just behaviors or the way that we talk to people that are close to us. It's then that real conscious decision to say, right, that is a bad behavior. I'm now going to, create a new behavior around that and I'm going to stick to it. I think it's about impact. There's a really interesting study. It's good that you mentioned social media. This study hasn't been published yet, but I heard um, Gabor Mate talk about it recently Uh where he was saying the study's been done and they looked there. It was a group of elite athletes who were on a training camp and they monitored them for a few days. So they had psychologists, neurologists, medics, and they were looking at all sorts of stuff, stress levels, blood pressure, anxiety levels you know, their chemical state in their body. And I think it was day two of the study, they they were monitoring every few hours and they thought, God, something really weird's happening because every four hours, there's a detrimental state for most of the participants, both physically and psychologically. So they went to the organizers and they said, can we have a look at why or what's happening at, at these points in the day? Because we've noticed there's a real shift. And they said, okay, that's when they have their break and they get their phones back. So, and of course we know they go onto their phones, they're scrolling social media, they're checking emails. And that study is quite powerful in showing that, okay, that, that, that in itself, if we take that as a behavior, if we know that there are things that impact detrimentally in the way we feel on our mood, then it is about being courageous enough to think, actually, this really doesn't, this doesn't serve me well. It might be a habit that I've got into, but that doesn't mean to say that I have to stay with it. So, but, but- but breaking habits, yeah, is a different for most people. Is you know, hence the reason why people smoke forever or people, people. But it's not impossible. The evidence is really clear. It's if you look at it, atomic habits. You know, they mm-hmm. you know that book will talk about the evidence that most habits can be changed in twenty eight days mm-hmm. if you're willing. So I guess for me that, and I and I get your point, and I think it's a really really valid point, which is why 
part of my work is about you've got to convince people that this work is beneficial. I can give you all of the evidence today, but I can also give you the evidence that these changes are astronomically helpful in your life. So that's a big part of how to be your own therapist, but actually this is worth it. We talk about the carrot and the stick mm. as a way of inspiring or motivating people to do so. Some people respond to that positive encouragement. Some people respond to that, what, what I'd say, what do I call it? Fear-based approach. Yeah, yeah. Somebody that responds to a fear-based approach or somebody that responds to the opposite, that, that positive encouragement, that... Can that ever be changed? Or is that is that just hardwired into people that that they just are, you know? Because Yeah, no, it's a it's a great point. Me me, you know, it was it was <clears throat> the bullies that went, let me show you. Now, if anyone encouraged me, it wasn't it wasn't something that I responded to. It was like if you said to me along the way, Yeah, well he's gonna beat you this year, you're shit, it would then take me into that place of I'll show you. Absolutely. But it was almost like the underdog in me, okay, wanted that fight. And then I I, I look back on on sports and, I, and middle distance running and I used to Seb Cohen, Steve Cram and Steve Ovette. Mm. And I used to watch them in these races really closely and they would never lead from the front. It was they would always sit on the shoulder of the second person or the first person. So they'd sit just behind watching what was going on. Yeah. And you'd see the person in the front always looking over their shoulder, over their shoulder yeah, as yeah, they were yeah. coming into the last yeah. 200 meters. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And so as I would watch that, I'd be like, you know, he's in front but you know what move to make, Absolutely. you know, you can, you can go when you're ready to go and the element of surprise is going to get in there. And it won me an award once many years ago in a, in a business competition because the guy that was ahead of me had to keep looking over his shoulder yeah, yeah. and I just stayed behind and behind and behind until the last hundred meters. And I was yeah. able to win that, that aspect is that, is that hardwired into how people think, you know, I think it depends. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a big question and I think it depends on the individual, but I, I try and keep it more simple. I think, if you work with the premise that there will always be obstacles that come up, no matter who you are, you will have parts of your story that will come up sometimes as an obstacle. Let me give you a personal example. I did a talk a few weeks ago. It was a big theatre event. I'm part of this podcast here in the UK at mm. the minute. And and it's going really well. It's good fun. The guys I'm working with are really good. It's, it's a really Damien's good, lovely, isn't he? Yeah, Damien and Jake. They're lovely guys and the production team are great. It's a real honour to be part of it. And we were doing one a few weeks ago in Glasgow and I was just about to go on stage and they were doing a big warm up and, you know, they introducing me and talking about what I do and stuff. And literally probably about 30 seconds before I went on, I could hear this kind of almost voice, you know, it's almost like a, an old pattern move and it was almost a voice thinking, who are you to be here? Mm. And it was that kind of working class kid that, you know, good, you're not good enough, why are you here? Now, interestingly, more than that, and I think this is a really important thing, it was also my fear moving in because fear will do that. Fear mm -hmm. will come in as a means of protection. Now, my entire early story was about trying to avoid either being blowing up or <laughs> blown up or killed or bullied or rejected or humiliated. So I developed a really strong fear mechanism about trying to avoid things going wrong or my fear mechanism became very skilled and developed. In that moment, and I've become very, very aware of this here, that was just my fear moving in as a protective mechanism, thinking mm. it's going to help me because it's like, okay, you're about to go out and face 2,000 people. Yeah. Would it be easier to get you not to do this because it'll keep you safe. Now, I'm so attuned to you. 
what I do is rather than get kind of entrenched in it, I'll, I kind of thank it for showing up because it's a helpful part of me. You know, it's not a bad part of me. So it came up and I could hear the, who are you to be doing this? So that voice can sometimes sound quite harsh uh-huh. and critical, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. So I, regardless of the tone of the voice, I'll always see it as a helpful mechanism. It's a, it's a mechanism that's aiming mostly to protect me, keep me safe, stop things from going wrong. Sometimes it will be harsher than all. If it thinks it's more imminent than this moment it was, it was 30 seconds from going on stage. So it was a bit harsher. Who are you to be doing this? Are you sure? What if they do it? You know, it was, I can, and it started to move quite quickly. And I kind of said, I know you're there. It's okay. We're fine. We've got this. We're going to do a great job. But I really appreciate you showing up. Just dropped off instantaneously. I mean, and I've got very skilled at managing that and I know it will happen some of the time. So I, there, there, were, there were periods in my life when I used to think, oh God, I need to get rid of this. I'm doing all of these big platform events and uh, I, I need to be stronger. I need to be more confident. I need to be totally in control. I mean, I've stopped doing all of that. What I do now is I kind of realise sometimes my humanity will come alongside me. And sometimes my anxiety or my fear will move in to try and protect me, but I've got so skilled at managing it and negotiating with it and working with it that I don't get overwhelmed by it anymore. And I just said, oh, okay, that's great. Now, what I, the reason I'm sharing that story is I think when we, when we learn to see most of our darker patterns as just protect, oh, most of the time when we dig deeper, they're just trying to help you. Now, it doesn't feel that way and sometimes it doesn't sound like that way when you've got a critical voice screaming at you. But when you can see that internal critical voice as something that's genuinely trying to help you, you then start to work with it and you start to negotiate with it and you start to see it as an ally rather than an enemy, then everything changes dramatically, actually. And I think, look, I would say this confidently. When, when people come to me in therapy or I'm doing workshops or whatever the context may be, the one thing above everything that that changes the landscape, I mean, I can teach people techniques and I can give them all of the theory and the research that they want. But if I don't get them to change that relationship, and if I don't get them to change the relationship of how they speak to themselves, then the work's a waste of time. And I think... I guess really what I've learned in my own life and what I hopefully have learned in my clients' lives is when they change that inner tone towards themselves or actually regardless of what's going on, they can be, they can almost ally with themselves and say, it's okay, we've got this. Or, but is that, is that the conscious and the subconscious having a conversation? It, it, it can be. Well, I talk about it differently. I mean, there's different psychologists and psychotherapists will explain it differently. I believe we're made up of many different parts. And that can be your unconscious or it can be your patterns. You can call it whatever you want, but we are because I see it every day in my career. So we got the parts that come up that are confident and self-assured and da-da-da-da-da. We've also got the parts that come up sometimes that are insecure, lonely, broken, angry. And I guess sometimes what we've got to, I see them almost kind of like pop-ups, you know. Sometimes my angry self will come up and think, God, I'm really angry at the minute. Where does that come from? It's a protective mechanism that's jumped up. So I cannot, so what you've got to do a lot of the time is you've got to acknowledge the part and say, okay, I know you're there. And most of the time we don't do that. You're really making me think about my life right now. A, <laughs> <laughs> we I got, hope my wife doesn't watch this episode. We, 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 it's we, like, you're, but you're really making me think. It's like... Oh, good. Well, that's, that, well, that, that's I mean, so powerful. That makes, every, that makes every second of the conversation worthwhile. If one person or a million people listen to this conversation, 
if it's made you stop and think then the conversation's been worthwhile because th this is what these platforms and this work is all about because if I make you stop and think you'll make somebody else stop and think it's a you know we're we're all responsible for handing stuff over but these parts that are that are inherent in all of us they they pop up every now and then and they're not bad they're not wrong it doesn't mean there's a problem it just means that we have to know okay you're there at the minute and I see you my angry self is here my lonely self is here. My critical self is here. So rather than push them down and run from them and avoid them or anaesthetize them, we, we give them our time and say, I see you and I know you're here. What is it you need? And more than often, the part will, will say, I'm a bit scared. Or is this going to be okay? Are you sure we're doing the right thing? So it's just normally fear-driven mechanisms. And the more you can see them for that, then you learn to navigate your life in a very, very different way. So, and there's real freedom with that because not only do you realize, okay, I don't need to be perfect all the time. This is actually okay. But then that, that internal tone towards self really begins to level off. You think actually, you know, we're, we're okay. So that kind of very soothe. This might answer it. Sorry if I'm talking too much, but no, this no, is no, a really please, important thing. Sorry we're, into this. We're, we're, we're driven by three mechanisms as human beings. So we've got threat, drive and soothe. Okay. So threat mechanism, we've talked about a lot. That is our anxiety mechanisms that are often hypervigilant and hardwired to be on guard for threat or danger or things going wrong. So most people I meet in my everyday life have a highly, 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 highly elevated threat mechanism. A lot of people I meet, I meet or I work with along the way, particularly who are high achievers, they also have highly elevated drive systems. Now your drive system is that part of you as a human being that wants to be better be more, be bigger, be more successful. Nothing wrong with that. But if it's been used as a means of internal self-validation, it's problematic. Now, the third mechanism is your self-soothing system, which is kind of what I'm alluding to. I would confidently say that 95% of people who come into my room or 95% of people I meet when I'm out and about on the road have highly, ele highly, highly elevated threat systems, high drive systems, but almost redundant soothing systems. And if the three are not in balance together, mm -hmm. then we're in bother. Mm -hmm. And I think this is why we struggle as human beings because these other two mechanisms are on overdrive and they're playing out all of the time. But most people crash land into adulthood and have no idea how to manage the mind, the emotions, the ups and downs, the variations, because we're not taught it. I wasn't taught it, I'm sure it was probably the same for you. Our cultures, our families, our backgrounds, we normally, you know, we're, we're taught how to get through school and, you know, how to cope and get on with it, don't complain. And we're taught all of these things, but nobody really teaches us how to emotionally regulate. So is it any surprises then that we all, we, we land into this world of adulthood and then, you know, as you beautifully described earlier, these huge crisis moments come where it all happens at once. We're not skilled. Mm. So that, the, the opt-out option seems in that moment a very sensible, viable thing to do because if we haven't got the tools or the resources or the know-how, it's going to feel overwhelming. But I guess uh, the positive message I want to reinforce is well, actually you do know. It's all there. All of it's there, but you just have to sometimes, you know, declutter, mm. take some of the stuff away to allow you to access what's Do a, you think that applies differently to men and women? Do you think that... that, that, that you know, there's a stereotype that women will talk to each other a lot. They'll share that and it enables them to kind of yeah, yeah. process more stuff than, than guys will. But when it comes to understanding it, do you think that they naturally women 
have the ability to do it and men are more either consciously or subconsciously stubborn. The research will say that women are more likely to to talk and process and they're also more likely, and this is the most important part, they're more likely to ask for help. Mm -hmm. Whereas males generally, and this is a global picture, males are more likely to see human struggle as failure. So all the stuff you're not, or yeah, failure, shamed, or be ashamed of the failure, being ashamed of the failure, or it means in some ways that they're not being able to provide, or they're not strong enough. So Mm -hmm. all of the stuff you and I are talking about today is viewed negatively as not an attribute of being a man. Whereas what I would say is actually the attributes of being a man are actually integrating all of this stuff and working with it, and that's not a message that's very dominant out there. But of course. Often people hit a crisis period or something does, you know, explode in their life and they suddenly realize, okay, I need to, I need to do some work here. So it's a big part of my mission as well is to, to really, really open up these conversations. And, you know, we go on the Instagram and there's a very, you know, it's so physically driven about what it is to be a bloke, what it is to be a man. And I think actually I believe true masculinity is more an inward state, you know, and however you define that, it's not this you know, being able to cope with anything. This alpha, you got this, you can conquer anything. You're, you know, you're, you're the man sort of thing. That, that for me isn't masculinity because that isn't the world we live in. And that's not how human beings are designed. Human beings are, you know, you know, we're varying all of the time. We've got fluctuating states that are occurring all of the time. So for me, it's more about, I'm more focused on humanity. And whether you're female, whether you're male, or however you identify, we are human beings. And the human state is to struggle and learning how to navigate that. And more importantly, learning how to let that empower you is what my mission and what my interest is. Is this your superpower? Is this what you think you were put on this planet to be? Oh, that's a good question. Do you know, I don't, I never think about it that way. I do, I tend, I think I was saying to you just before we started recording, my life is sort of, where, where I am at the moment, doing writing books, doing talks, doing a lot more public stuff than, I, than I've ever done in my career, I would be lying if I said this is a natural state and that I get out of bed and say, yeah, I love this. And it's actually not. There's part of me has to dig deep because, you know, my career was very private. I had a very successful career, but it was a private career and I got on with it and I did it. I wasn't doing any social media stuff. I wasn't doing any talks. I wasn't doing any books. Um... I can almost believe, I think sometimes life has a bit of a sense of humor. And I think for somebody who spent most of their life trying to stay off radar, mm-hmm. it feels very weird for me that middle age has brought me to this point where actually <laughs> it's taken me in a different direction. And it's almost like, even that stage story I told the other day, it's almost like part of me has to push myself out there and say, no, this is important. Mm-hmm. And I think it's part of me in some ways addressing my own shame narrative, that finding your own voice using your own story, using your own experience. And I guess really what I've learned is uh, the work helps people. Um, It seems to resonate. I think you have to be truthful in these stories and that's really difficult sometimes, but I think you have to be able to, to, to deliver your own raw humanity. And I think people find that a relief. So I, I kind of will never, if someone gives me a brief before a talk and said, oh, don't talk about your own stuff or don't, don't let them know that you've ever struggled, I won't do the gig. I just categorically said, you know something, I'm the wrong guy for the job. 
there are a million people out there who will do that, honestly. I'd rather not do the job. I will, I'll lose money. I'll not go. I'll happily walk away from the gig because they no, 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 wrong person for the job. So the way I see it, I don't really see it like a superpower. I just see it like, okay, this is where it, this is where it's at at the moment. This is where it's evolved. I sometimes think, God, this is a bit weird. I haven't, the book idea even, the book was just, a, it was a conversation. Why don't you write a book one day? And I was like, yeah, that's an idea. It wasn't on my list. It wasn't a, Oh, I'm going to do a book one. It it was just a. Uh, oh, maybe yeah, that's interesting. I'll maybe read. Yeah, I don't know though. It just happened. I I I used to be, and I still am. I'm from a wealth management background, and so I used to watch people all day, every day, mess up their money. Yeah. Okay. Make really bad decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bad relationship with money. And so, I I became very passionate about helping people solve that problem. Yeah. So. I used to think of myself as the as the um, the fifth emergency service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got the fire, you got the yeah, you got yeah, ambulance, yeah. police, you got the yeah, AA, yeah. and then you got me. And my job was to stop you messing up yeah, your yeah. money. And I was really on a mission, okay, to stop people making these bad decisions. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if that came from me wanting to try and help take trauma away from people that yeah. maybe was was a trauma I experienced as a bullied kid myself. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, because yeah. the way you mentioned that before makes me think that. I guess maybe I would word it differently. Okay. I, I guess superhero for me makes me feel about, the, I, I guess kind of the Irish Catholic in me, there's a bit of, you know, humility comes in. I kind of get a bit, oh God, I wouldn't call myself a superhero. I wouldn't I wouldn't use that language. I guess what I would say is um, that wounded, that wounded healer concept that I mm. like, I would say that probably sums up best my work that I I kind of guess really I've walked the walk and that gives me a real confidence in my job because I know the theory, I know the academia, I know the processes, I know how to do my job. I'm good at my job and I can say that confidently. I'm a good therapist and I love what I do. I'm a good speaker, I love what I do. I believe wholeheartedly in the work. So that's one part of the equation, but I also know that I've walked this road and I often know when a client sat in front of me and they're talking about stuff, you're never ever aligned with the situation because you can never really know what somebody is going through. But I guess when you've been through difficult stuff in your own life and you've had to navigate your way through some difficult roads, you get a real inkling and you get a real sense of, yeah, yeah, I get this. Look, you you have way more credibility because of it. Because yeah. if, if 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 because the, I mean the journey you've been on is a, is a, is a difficult and challenging one, and it, anyone that's heard that story and I and I've listened to that story, anyone that's heard that story, will be able to have empathy, but also come to speak to somebody like you, knowing he's been through. Yeah, he's been it. through, and it's it. different because they may not be gay or they may not have grown up in yeah. the troubles. But they know you've been through some shit. Yeah. They may not have been spat at, you know, yeah. like yeah. you were and yeah. stuff like that but they can at least feel that you suffered. And I think that if, if, if I meet someone that has had the perfect life and the Ox Oxbridge education, yeah. 2.4 yeah, yeah. kids and half a Labrador type of setup, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and middle-class parents and everything was pretty normal. Yeah. I would feel sometimes you don't get me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so when someone has been through that, like you have it, but like, okay. I think the best, in my experience, the, the, be the best therapist I've had over the years, they know adversity. Mm. And you know that when you're in a room with them. Mm. they get it and you can't teach that you cannot teach that to people mm. when I'm supervising therapists and stuff you know you can't you can't really teach empathy you can't teach compassion you can you can give people the theories of it but where, where, when and I'm not I'm, I'm not saying that everyone has to have a terrible life or 
but few people have perfect lives. And I think if you're willing to use your adversity and work with it and let it reshape you so that in turn you can then use that to help people reshape their struggle. It's all about, you know, I see it almost like a bit of a relay, isn't it? We're all just handing over the baton and saying, okay, this is what I've learned. I'll hand a bit over to you today. Hopefully you'll hand it over and we're, we're all doing this stuff. Okay, this is what I know. I'm going to give this to you. And then, and I take stuff all the time. So we're all just kind of handing this stuff back and forward. And I that that's how I see it really. And that keeps it really simple for me. I think if I complicate it in my head, then I think, no, 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 I've got, yeah, I'm, I'm really learning to just get much, show up, do the work, stay aligned to the values of the work and trust really. I mean, look, <clears throat> I'm not a big believer in manifesting it happens. I just, I, I, I'm not into me neither. very very dust thinking. I do believe there is a degree of showing up, mm-hmm. putting the work in, putting the, I'm a, you know, I, I work hard, I'm a grafter, you know, I've working since I've, I've worked, washed glasses in a bar since I'm 11. So I, I've worked my entire career. I've never had a period when I haven't worked. So I believe in showing up and working hard, but I also get much better than, but there's also a big skill in letting go and not trying to control it all or the comparing. I mean, that is the part for me, when you when you when you're in an industry where you've got publishers and agents and PR teams and great people, some of them lovely people, and you're trying to get work out there and you're trying to promote your stuff, there is a real danger, and I've noticed that where you can start to compare what other people are doing, or you get compared and say, "Oh, such and such book's doing a bit better than yours," or "Why weren't you invited to that festival?" or "You could have headlined that." When that sort of stuff begins to happen, that's where I think that stuff makes me unhappy. It's a great book, isn't there? Blue Sky Thinking, um, which helps people in that situation because I think comparison is something that everyone... It's the the thief of joy, isn't it? I did a chapter in that one of my... the the second book. I I mean, it really is. And I think that it's a road to no turn, really. So I've just got... You know, I... Well, you'll never win. Yeah, of course. You'll never... it's It's not possible. But it's a bit like what I said to you earlier. The experience of working with people who were terminally ill, it's always about God. There was so much, so much gift, gifted back in doing that work. But I guess even in my work today is because I often see people who have got, you know, extraordinary careers and profiles, but I also see them think, but even that's not enough. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, it doesn't matter with the BAFTA, Oscar, you know, winning the Olympics, it doesn't matter. It's still not enough because it hasn't satisfied the inner gaps and the yearnings and the the losses and the brokenness call it whatever you want mm-hmm. so I kind of think for for me it keeps it really really clear I think it doesn't matter if it's a bestseller amazing that's a great thing it doesn't need to be mm-hmm. if I'm invited that would be nice but it, don't, it doesn't so I, I'm getting to a much better place doesn't it, so much of this stuff doesn't matter and um, so it takes let me take a lot of pressure off because it's just like Okay, well, look, I'll keep showing up. I'll keep working hard. I'll keep doing my thing, but I'm not going to measure in the way the world measures because for me, that's not healthy. And it's not the ethos. It's not the, it's not the message that I want to deliver in my work. 
So you kind of have to be you got it. You can be. Yeah, yeah. and you got to you, you got to live what you preach. That's, and you, but also, you if you have kids, you got to teach your kids that. It's that we don't you, tell your kids, you know. Yeah. You tell your kids, try your hardest. Yeah. Okay, do your best. Okay, yeah. and your best is is yeah. good enough, you know. You, you, That's, you, but we don't take the hit, no, take the lessons no, but, ourselves. But you've got to, isn't it? I think that's the thing. You you got to you really do got to live what you preach. And then when you're, for me, when I'm not living what I preach, I feel this internal. I know when it feels, oh, this doesn't feel authentic or this doesn't feel like it's me or I feel like I'm performing or I feel like I'm delivering a version that they've asked me to do. And I think, no, no, I did that for most of my life up until I was 20. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not going to be a version. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be that person that I think I should be just to get accepted or to fit in. And I think, I said this to somebody the other day, actually, it's a really interesting thing. When you've had a difficult backstory and there's been rejection and humiliation and alienation and all of that sort of stuff. And I don't want that to sound in any way self-pitying because it happens to millions of people. But it's a really, really interesting thing is when you do stuff that's more public and when you're doing stuff where you're putting yourself out there, well, then there's always a risk of rejection. There's always a risk of humiliation or someone slagging you off or giving you a tough time. So I learned in the early days of doing this stuff that it's very easy for these two worlds to collide where a rejection in the here and now can suddenly spark a rejection from early years. Mm. A humiliation in the here and now can suddenly wake that stuff up. So there's a real skill in navigating the two when stuff comes up that creates a big internal reaction. It is, okay, now this is now. This has got nothing to do with back then, but those worlds can collide together very quickly. And, you know, I my think... St- my stomach just turned as you said it. that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It ha- It really happens. Yeah. And I really, I'm very aware of the fact because my fear when I do public stuff is, God, I don't want to be laughed at. I don't want to be mocked. I don't want to be left out. I don't want to be all of that stuff. So there, my, my protectors come up to try and safeguard me against that. So the work is about making sure that the two worlds don't collide. And I think very, very few people recognize that struggle goes on in their life, that the reactions that they're having in the here and now are often very often nothing to do with what's going on in the here and now. It's just triggering old stuff. Mm. And they haven't learned to not only process and deal with it, but they haven't learned to segregate the two worlds and not let them collide. Have you turned this into an audio book? It's an it's an audio book. Yeah, audio book yeah, as well. So you can get the hard copy of How to Be Your Own Therapist and on audio uh, or audible.com. Yeah, yeah, and Amazon, all the usual. Did platforms. you do it yourself? Though? I did it myself. Yeah, okay, perfect. yeah. Because I listen, I don't read. Yeah. Okay, I use books for reference. Yeah. But I listen, and I I walk every day. Okay, when I get back from the gym, I walk, and that's my hour every morning yeah, of yeah. listening. So hence the reason I ask. This book came out when. June, so just coming up to a year. Just coming yeah, up, to, up a year. to a year. Yeah. Have you got more books in you? I've done three, thinking about four at the minute. Are I you? mean, I guess, really, yeah, I am. I've definitely, I, I, there's, there's another book brewing it. I can feel it. There. Can I, every time <laughs> I think that's it, I'm done. I kind of feel there's, there's more layers. And I guess the more you unravel your own story, you think, oh, this is, this is really important stuff to, to share. But I guess what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to let these books breathe. And I guess when you do books, other possibilities, other opportunities come up. And I guess I, I kind of got to your point at the minute. I'm thinking, okay, this has been great. I've really enjoyed it. How do I, and I use the platform well? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do I 
get this stuff out there to people who are interested and who I think might benefit from some of what I talk about. So rather than have the the books just as a main vehicle, um, I'm pushing myself a bit further. But I'm doing a lot more talks. This year has been nonstop, just back-to-back talks, and I'm doing a lot more of them. I'm actually really beginning, I I do enjoy them, but I'm really beginning to enjoy them and see the value in them because often a a word or a sentence can be, you you get a message afterwards and someone says, you know, when you said that, that changed everything Mm -hmm. for me and stuff. So I'm now really seeing the the power and the potential and using the other platforms. So I'm keeping a, there's a couple of really interesting conversations going on at the minute, stuff that I never expected to happen or I didn't think would happen. Um, I'm just keeping a really open mind about, you know, what happens next. So yeah, another book definitely brewing, but just taking my time with it and then just kind of now going to trust and see wherever I end up next. And do you think we could twist your arms, come to Dubai and talk for us there? Yeah, I'd come to Dubai. I'd like Dubai. I think it's, you know, it's, I, I went for five years ago, I went to Dubai. I was intrigued by it. I mean, I'd never been, I'd heard loads about it. But um, th- that's the thing. Now, I'll go anywhere to talk and do my work because this this is a global conversation. Mm-hmm. My books are now, and I don't want this to sound in any way braggy or egotistical, my books are in about 36 languages, I think our latest translation was. Now, when you sit down to write your, your books and you do your work, you never for a millisecond, I certainly didn't. I can remember my first book thinking of 10 people read this and it genuinely, I mean, I know yeah. that might sound underambitious, but it was like 10 people read this and it helps them all do the job. It's, you know, these books are in about 36 countries now globally. And I think that for me speaks the importance about this is not just like, it's not a UK problem or an American problem. This is a global issue. It does not matter what country in the world you live in. This is a global humanitarian struggle really mm-hmm. so for me it doesn't matter where the country is or what's going on politically or what views are human struggle is human struggle mm-hmm. so yeah Owen O'Kane thank you so You're much welcome. for coming to join us on You're the welcome. show today I've had such a fantastic conversation with you and I, I really, really appreciate your time thank, and thank you for your honesty and your stuff it's been lovely meeting you good awesome Perfect. thank you so much You're welcome wow <laughs>